I needed that this morning. Especially this, this 11 a.m. service, I just want to thank you for doing your job. Your job, one of your jobs when we gather, is to address, even admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs by singing and making melody with your hearts to God. I needed what you just did this morning. I actually couldn't sing about half the lyrics of some of the things we sang this morning as I was listening to your voices and seeing some of your faces and your postures in worship. I needed to hear you sing like that, be still and behold him. Because like was read this morning in Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the body. He's the head of the church and in everything he should be preeminent. And like you probably, many things this week have vied in my heart for the place of preeminence. That's why I don't quit coming to church, why we can't quit coming to church, because we reorient ourselves every week and the body helps get the focus again on the head. He's preeminent. We're the body. Anyway, so thank you for doing your job. Just another thought I I had as we were singing is um, the preacher's not the only one tasked by the power of the Holy Spirit to show the church Christ when we gather. So are all of you. We could rewrite that course to say, God, reveal your glory through the singing of your church until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. So anyway, thank you for showing up, for doing your part. I'm gonna take the ball right now. God's given me the responsibility this morning to also help show us Christ through the preaching of his word. I'm thankful that we just sang though. The reminder is if the Holy Spirit doesn't help us do that, we're sunk. But he loves to do that. Eric was preaching last week. The Lord's Prayer reminds us uh, the parable that Jesus told that the Father loves to give the Holy Spirit when we ask. So we know he's going to answer that prayer. So turn to Luke chapter 11. As we dive in, put my cheaters on. Luke eleven fourteen through 23 is our passage this morning. I want to start reading it. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger, 
Then he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. We're going to pray in just a moment for the Lord to help us with this, but I just want to point something out here. Some scenes in the Gospel of Luke are more easily relatable to us than others. For example, last week, the Lord's Prayer, the disciples see Jesus' pattern of praying regularly, and they say, Lord, would you teach us to pray like John's disciples? And he teaches them to pray. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I think we can all picture ourselves in that scene. Or or the week before, Mary and Martha, Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet and he's teaching and Martha's busy, so busy serving Jesus that she misses the point that she needs to be served by Jesus uh, more than he needs to be served by her. And we can, we can picture ourselves in that scene. But if you're like me, some of these scenes like we just read in the Gospel of uh, Luke are a little harder to relate with. Here's this crowd And a man is oppressed by a demon, an evil spirit that has kept him speechless for who knows how long. And Jesus drives the demon out. This man suddenly begins speaking and the crowds are amazed. And that's probably, I'm going to go on a limb here, not part of our our normal day-to-day experience, right? There's something strange and supernatural. If you're honest, sometimes you might read passages in the Bible like this and feel like we just uh, shifted from historical narrative to fantasy fiction. Like this part's the fairy tale parts of the Bible. But it's not. We can't forget that there is a very real spiritual realm. We can't ignore it or avoid it through Luke's gospel. Everywhere Jesus went as he's preaching, he was casting demons out and healing people. There's a spiritual realm. The Bible frequently reminds us that there's more to God's created world than merely what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. Which, it's surprising that that surprises us when we think that it all begins with God, who has always existed, who brought all things into being, and God is spirit. God is not physical. John 1.18 says that God, uh, no, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, when he took on, the Son of God took on a human nature, enfleshed himself, made him known in a, in a, in a visible, tangible way. But b- before that, for eternity past, God is spirit. And so he has created spiritual things as well as physical, spiritual beings. The Bible calls angels created to do his bidding as his messengers and for his purposes. But we're also told in the Bible, we're not told a lot of detail how this all went down, but that there are some spiritual beings created by God who have rebelled against him and are actively working in this world to oppose God, particularly, specifically by targeting his image bearers, mankind. We have an enemy. In fact, I was thinking in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's describing our universal sinful condition as humans, and he defi- describes that with a reference to our enemy. Notice he says, You all were dead, uh, me too, not you all, we all <laughs> were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, which is following the prince of the power of the air. There's that spiritual 
being language again. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you hear what Paul's saying is ever since the beginning when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan and they gave in, and they joined his rebellion against this holy, righteous, all-powerful, good, sovereign king that should have been trusted. From the moment that Satan had that first victory, he has been at work in this world to try to destroy and turn away God's image bearers in a course of this world, a, a, a course away from God, bent away from God. And we're born with this sort of spiritually deadness, this heart that's bent away from God, bent inward towards ourselves, so that then we live in a way that Paul can say is following the course of this world. It's just following the way the prince of the power of the air wants us to live. We're not innocent victims in that. We're not powerless because Paul says we're just do when we do that, we're doing what, what is our nature. We are by nature children of wrath. We have desires in our heart that, that Satan preys upon and we're an easy target. Jesus said Satan's mission in, John, in, in the Gospel of John is to steal, kill, and destroy. And don't we see the fingerprints of Satan everywhere we look in our world? He's having a field day. But we can't miss... Uh, understand Satan or misperceive Satan as having more power than he does. God and Satan are not co-equal opponents. Not by a long shot. Satan's not alone. We have spiritual enemies, plural. Ephesians 6, 12, Paul wants to wake us up to this reality, probably because we tend to forget we tend to just default to what our eyes can see and our hands can touch. And he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. He's not just talking about earthly kings and presidents here. He says against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that are playing out <laughs> this battle of forces in our physical world, in, in our lives. We're the battleground over which this cosmic battle is being waged. Satan is his forces trying to destroy God's image bearers, not just in the short term by bringing pain and misery in different ways into our lives, but in an eternal sense. You see, if Satan can keep you in that course all the way to the end, if he can keep you in your guilty state before God, the greater victory he can have is to see you separated from God forever at death because of the guilt of your sin. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that's Satan's strategy. The God of this world, he, a lowercase g, in other words, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why, why are we going here? Why aren't we just jumping into Luke 11? Well, here's why. This is what we're seeing in Luke 11. That's what is happening in this scene. Satan, 
And spiritual forces of darkness are at work to keep people in the course of this world. And it's not just the mute man. Everyone in this scene is targeted by Satan's schemes. In fact, ironically, the only man in this scene who's going to walk away liberated is the mute man. Others in the crowd are still in deep wheat, as my dad used to say. So what's the good news of great joy for all people in this scene with Jesus? Well, it's this, as strong as our enemy is, and he is, he's stronger than you are, the Bible says. So we shouldn't be haughty or flippant when we think of our enemy just because Christ is stronger than him. We're not, but Christ is. We sang it in that hymn. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. This scene lifts up the right man in front of us, the strong man who's on our side. And he's mighty to deliver. And he's merciful to deliver. So let me pray that we wouldn't miss this. Holy Spirit, would you show us Christ? Show us the right man. Help us to see him for who he truly is. I pray for anyone this morning who's not standing with him right now, they're in the against him camp, that you would not let them leave here without having seen and tasted a glimpse of your glory and beauty and power and mercy and divinity, Jesus, that they might believe. And I pray for all of us here this morning who would say we are with Jesus, that you'd show us Christ in a greater way, to a greater degree, so that we would be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, and we'd be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, whatever they may be. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dig in. Verses 4 through 16 is the setting. It's interesting. Most of this section is Jesus talking. It's very little, you know, ink is spilt on what actually happens. Just one sentence, but there's a power encounter, a spiritual power encounter, public, that leads to a confrontation. Jesus drives a demon out of a man who was speechless under the power of this demon. He begins speaking, and it says the crowd, people, marvel at what they've just seen Jesus do. But apparently, verse 15 says, not all are marveling in a, in a positive way. It says, but some didn't marvel. Some said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. I'm, I'm whispering because I don't think that they said that to Jesus. Because then it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, confronted them. So who's saying this and who are they saying it to? Well, you picture the crowd. In Matthew and Mark's account of this scene, they name the whisperers. They're Pharisees. They're the religious leaders who ought to be leading the way in receiving Jesus and recognizing him as God's anointed. But they're pre-committed in their hardness of heart and unbelief. They're unwilling to, to acknowledge that Jesus might be from God. But here's the thing. Notice in this scene, nobody's disputing that Jesus has just done something extraordinary. They all saw it. They all knew this guy couldn't talk, and now he's speaking. So what they can do is try to discredit Jesus. They can, they can call into question the source of power behind this sign that they've just seen. So the big question as I see it in this scene is this. Whose side is Jesus on? Whose side is Jesus on? 
I think Jesus actually answers that question three ways here. And then in verse 23, he gives a final declarative statement and draws a line and turns the question back on them and us. So let's look at how he does that. First, first answer to the question whose side Jesus is on. He's not on Satan's side. Be very clear. That's not the side Jesus is on. Their claim is absurd and even dangerous. As Jesus points out, he, he, he's so brilliant. Jesus so often just sort of ties a, a, a loop or a noose around the neck of his opponents with, with, with his brilliance. And he does this with these two rhetorical questions where he assumes for the sake of argument for a moment, let's just say you're right. Let's just say I am casting out demons by the power of Satan. First, verse 18, well then how will Satan's kingdom stand if Satan is divided against himself? Think about that for a minute. I mean, for, for how, three years of his ministry from town to town to town as he's preaching, everywhere he's driving out demons by the hundreds, it seems like, as we go through the gospel. Everywhere he goes, he's liberating people from oppression and mental, um, and both mentally and physically with, with uh, mental illness and, and blindness and muteness and death. Everywhere he goes, Jesus is, is setting people free from misery that Satan and demons have inflicted. So if his mission is to steal, kill, and destroy, and Jesus is going around uh, healing, freeing, and restoring, that's not going to turn out very well for Satan, right? I mean, that's just absurd, right? That Jesus would be setting people free from the very one who he serves. So that's absurd. He just sort of throws that one out there. But it's more than just absurd to make that claim is dangerous. I think that's the point of verse 19. Because then he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? And then he says, therefore, they, they will be your judges. Depending on who's right and who's wrong in this situation, they might turn out to be your judges. So who are the sons he has in mind? Commentators spill a lot of ink over who the sons are. It's not totally clear. I think the two options are this. Either... Jesus is referring to other Jews who were in their camp, other religious leaders, other Pharisees, other rabbis who cast out demons at times. And if that's the case, and he's saying, so who, by whom do they cast them out? I think the argument would be something like, I'm doing the same exorcisms your boys are doing. So are you implying that they also do this by Satan? How do you think that they'll receive that? But I actually think, I've been convinced this week, I, I think that Jesus actually has his disciples in mind. By your sons, he means your fellow Jews who are now following me. Because so far in Luke, we've seen him send the 12 out with power and authority to cast out demons in his name. And then he sent out 72 with the same authority who all came back and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So if that's what Jesus means, he's saying something like this. If you're claiming that I cast out demons by the power of Satan, what about all these others, followers of mine, who have been casting out demons? You're going to have to say the same for them. And if you say the same for them, that's potentially a lot of damning evidence against you if you're wrong. Because if you're wrong, they will stand with God in judgment against you one day for having rejected the work of God to save in your midst. So it's not just a stupid claim, why would Satan fight Satan? But it's dangerous. In fact, it's so dangerous that in, in Matthew, 
his account of this, Jesus says, you know what you're doing when you ascribe God's redeeming work to Satan's power? You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Eric Twistleman mentioned that phrase last week, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus says, no one will be forgiven blasphemy of the Spirit. So we read that and we think, boy, I sure hope I'm not guilty of that, right? And you might even worry, am I guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And he said last week, I think is what's correct, if you're worried that you've blasphemed against the Spirit, you probably haven't. Because your concern about what the Holy Spirit thinks or God thinks is evidence to the contrary. I think this passage makes clear what this means. Blasphemy against the Spirit is the, the sin of persistent unbelief in the face of the Holy Spirit's witness to the person and the work of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter three terms, I think blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to hear his voice and harden your heart, to persist in an evil, unbelieving heart and un, without, without relenting. And what's amazing to me here is even though Jesus says that sin will not be forgiven, right now that sin can be avoided. He wouldn't be having this conversation with his opponents if Jesus wasn't merciful to say you don't have to stay in this course. The fact that he's warning them tells them they can back up, back off this claim and change their mind. You know, in Matthew 12, where Jesus says that blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, in the next breath, he says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So you can blaspheme Jesus and be forgiven. You can say very hateful things about Jesus like you cast out demons by Satan. You can be forgiven of that. You can be forgiven of hating Jesus as a devil in your heart if you'll hear the Spirit's voice and not harden your heart and relent and humbly repent and turn back to Jesus. In fact, it occurred to me this week, the Apostle Paul was one of those who was on the precipice of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and Jesus rescued him from being a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit. Listen to how he, said, he, he recounts his conversion in 1 Timothy 1. He says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Why is he so stunned that Jesus would do this? Not just save him, but then give him a significant role in his kingdom. He says, because formerly I was a blasphemer. I promoted lies about God by the things I said about Jesus. I was a persecutor and an insolent opponent. That means said harsh things about Jesus and those who followed him. But it wasn't end of the story for Paul. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Which makes me thankful to say this morning, if you hear, you might have come in here still with a very hard heart toward God and toward Jesus and toward the church. It's not too late. If this morning <laughs> there's a prick in your conscience, a sense of, I might be wrong about this. That's the grace of God through the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to see Christ. And even today, rather than harden your heart, you can open your heart and receive Jesus for who he says he is. He's not on Satan's side. Second answer to the question, whose side is Jesus on, is he's not, or he is on God's side. 
There's only two sides. So if he's not on Satan's side, he is definitively on God's side. Look at verse 20. Two ways Jesus underscores this here. First, in verse 20, he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why does he say by the finger of God? I thought, man, that's kind of a unique way of saying it, not just by the power of God, by the finger of God. You go do a little search in your online Bible for the phrase, the finger of God. You're only gonna get four hits. One is right here in Luke. The other three are all from early in the Old Testament in Moses' life. Two of the three are when God gives the law when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and it says he he writes on these tablets of stone by the finger of God. And the other one, I think, is very similar to what's going on in this scene. Exodus chapter 8 is when God is unleashing plague after plague on Egypt to force Pharaoh to relent and let Israel go out of slavery into freedom. And God has sent Moses as his representative deliverer and given Moses signs in the form of plagues that are ultimately, God is, you know, sending the plagues, but Moses is the deliverer. He's the one sort of (laughs) bringing the word, right? And the first two plagues happen and these magicians and sorcerers in Pharaoh's court, somehow it says through their secret arts are able to replicate in some way what Moses is doing and Pharaoh's unconvinced. But listen to what it says when it gets to the third plague. The magicians tried their, by their secret arts to produce gnats, which was the third plague, clouds of these gnats, but they couldn't. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, he's not playing by these secret arts. Whatever, whatever we're, this is above our pay grade. This is an entirely different thing, he says to Pharaoh. This man is doing these things by the finger of God. He's not demonic. He's divine. And Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, you can know for sure the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus claims to drive out demons by the very same finger of God, which means if Jesus is on God's side, then this mute man who is freed from one demon in this scene is just a little snapshot, a a secret, sort of a sneak preview of the greater deliverance that Jesus has come to accomplish. It's the exodus he said he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem when he was speaking with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. God is about to fulfill his longest standing promise in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, through Jesus. Do you remember Genesis 3? Adam and Eve had sinned. God pronounces a curse, but not just on them, but on Satan. And the curse on Satan is a good news for us. The curse upon Satan was, God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And he, one day, the offspring of this woman will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. One will be just a flesh wound. The other will be a fatal blow. And I think that's what this parable in the next two verses depicts, using another analogy. But it's the same coming deliverance by a stronger man. Let's read it. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him, overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoil. He plunders the strong man. So a couple of questions we can ask. 
exactly where and when is Jesus, who's the stronger man, going to attack and overcome the strong man, Satan, take away his armor and divide his spoil? It's not here just in this moment. This moment with the mute man is just a glimpse of the power Jesus has. But where it's going to happen, hint, Luke's been telling us, it's where Jesus set his face toward. Jerusalem, right? In Jerusalem at the cross is where this parable is going to actually happen. The reality this parable is depicting is going to happen. In Jerusalem at the cross, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, John says, 1 John 3, 8. At the cross in Jerusalem, Jesus disarmed these rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, Colossians 2.15. And how he overcame him and took away his armor, how about this, Hebrews 2.14 and 15, he destroyed the one with the power of death, that is the devil. He delivered those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, how? By making propitiation for the sins of the people. We sing a hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. That's how he sets him free, by breaking the power of canceled sin. Well, how does that work? Well, he makes himself a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice. He goes to the cross and he bears our sins on his shoulders so that God can be both just judge and the justifier, the merciful one who forgives and receives sinners as sons. When God canceled your debt on the cross when Jesus gave himself as a propitiation, the power of sin to condemn disappeared. And the accuser was disarmed. I think that's what Jesus has in mind when he says overcoming and attacking the strong man and then stripping him of his armor, stripping him of his arms, of his weaponry. That's what Jesus did at the cross. We sing another hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because sin is canceled, that means its power to condemn is gone. Jesus is the right man from Luther's hymn. And he's not just the right man on God's side, but like we sing, he's the right man on our side, which I think is the third answer Jesus gives to the question, whose side is Jesus on? He's on the side of sinners. Amazing. He's not just on God's side. He and God are on the side of sinners. They wouldn't be doing what they're doing here if they weren't. Look at verse 21 again in this parable and ask yourself, what are the goods, or if you're in the NIV, the possessions that the strong man is so worried about guarding and keeping safe and secure in his palace? It's not a what, I don't think. It's a who. It's sinners keeping us in the course of this world. So what Jesus has come as the stronger man to do at the cross is a a work of liberation, At the cross, Jesus told the strong man, let my people go. And Satan had to say, okay. (laughs) He had no claim on us. Where sin, the guilt of sin is canceled, the accuser doesn't have a leg to stand on. It made me think of Capture the Flag. You know the game Capture the Flag? Any kids in here play Capture the Flag? Maybe this year at PE you have. 
I loved that game when I was a kid, even though I was really slow and I was terrible at it. I always got caught. But bear with me, no analogy is perfect, but I was thinking about capture the flag. And the rules of capture the flag are, if you get tagged in enemy territory, you are taken to jail where you have to stay till the very end of the game, which usually for me was really long because there was always the fast kid in class that never got caught. But anyway, so you imagine and capture the flag, you're in jail with a whole bunch of other slow people like you and you're in jail and the rules say you can't break yourself out of jail. There's no rule in it about how you can get yourself out. The only way you, don't, you can get out before the end of the game is if someone else remaining from your side breaks through into enemy territory, never gets tagged, succeeds where you failed, and voluntarily runs into jail themselves. Then you know what they get to do in the game? What do they get to do? It was the three sweetest words at PE. Free walk back, right? Everyone gets to walk back in a train with the, the, with the one who, who saved us and broke us out of jail. I think it's a picture of what Jesus did at the cross and then coming out of the grave. We were all in jail. We all deserved the grave. With a capital G, separation from God. Because we had all sinned, we'd all fallen short of God's glory and the wages of our sin was death. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, the strong man died for us. And the strong man was buried in a grave for us. But the grave had no claim on him because he'd never sinned. Not one temptation ever tagged Jesus from beginning to end. It's like Teflon. To his very last breath when he said, it is finished. He obeyed the Father and pleased him perfectly. Fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law perfectly. So that the grave had no claim. So he could come back out of the grave alive, resurrected, and he, can, he has a pass to have, bring everyone else with a free walk back if we'll just receive him. If we'll collapse onto him in faith because God offers the opportunity to receive forgiveness of sin and the spirit to enliven us by faith alone. And we join him and we become with him. And Ephesians 4, 8 says, Jesus then leads a host of captives and gives gifts to men, it says. He divides the spoils. Again, I love that line in, in Luther's hymn. So now, all of those who have been led out, the captives who have been led out of, uh, into freedom, the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. I love what we sang this morning, uh, the grave couldn't hold him in the grave. But that power is living in us now, we sang. That's what Luther's talking about. So we've come to the end here. Verse 23. So whose side is Jesus on? Not on Satan's side. Definitely on God's side. Thankfully, he is also on the side of sinners. But then he turns the question around with a statement. He's, he looks at this crowd and he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Two things I want us to see here as we finish. Number one, there's only two sides. There's no neutral ground. There's no third safe middle spot. Jesus draws the line very intentionally. Not to be with him means against him. And there's more than one way you can be against Jesus. You can be against Jesus like the first group with a pre-commitment to unbelief 
that leads you to deny any evidence to the contrary that Jesus might be who he says he is. That's the ones who were claiming he... Why would they claim something so absurd? They had nothing else to do. They were simply so committed to their unbelief that they were unwilling to admit what was staring them right in the face. But I want to ask you a hard question. Are there things that you know Jesus stands for that you don't like? Or are there things Jesus commands that you chafe against? Boundaries that Jesus draws that you don't want drawn? Does Jesus denounce some things that you love? If so, I want to ask you, are you willing this morning to at least admit it may be possible that because of that, you're closed off to even entertaining the possibility that Jesus just might be who he said he is? And that when Jesus says, no matter what you might deny to take up your cross and follow me, it'll all be more than worth it in the end. You'll see. Is it possible that whatever denying yourself might require that right now seems unthinkable just might be worth it? It made me think of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she's a woman who, by her own admission, in her, she has a great little book uh, called Secret, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And, and when she says unlikely convert, I mean, she says she was one of the, the most hardened, committed in her unbelief about Jesus and the church and the Bible and the whole thing. I mean, she was the last person she ever imagined would ever become a follower of Christ. Uh, If you want to read the short version, go Google later, um, My Trainwreck Conversion. That's the title of the shorter version of it on Christianity Today. It's excellent. But in her journey of faith, it, it finally began when she was willing to entertain the slightest possibility that maybe I've got some pre-commitments here that are making me unwilling to consider all the evidence about Jesus. And she was willing to read the Bible, consider Jesus and the Gospels sincerely, and the Holy Spirit worked. And she describes the point where she hadn't quite closed, she hadn't quite trusted Christ yet, but she was on the verge, and she described it like this. She's, oh, oh, that's the article. You can go find that, my train wreck conversion. She said, I fought with everything I had. I didn't want this. I didn't ask for this. I counted the cost, and I didn't like the math on the other side of the equal sign. In other words, what it might cost me if I followed Jesus. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. And the Holy Spirit won her over. And she follows Christ and has a beautiful ministry and as, as an author and a speaker, which is wonderful. But this morning, if, if that might be you, I want to ask you to at least be willing to admit, is it possible that you've got some pre-committed unbelief that makes you unwilling to consider who Jesus is? And if so... Would you keep coming on Sundays as we keep studying the Gospel of Luke together? And ask the Lord to persuade you otherwise. Second, though, there's another way you you can be uh, against Jesus. Maybe you're more like the second group that we didn't really talk about, these people in the crowd who were still testing Jesus and seeking further signs from heaven. Because verse 23 doesn't leave any room. Which camp are they in? They're in the against me camp. Unbelief doesn't always look like hostility toward Jesus. Sometimes it just looks like perpetual skepticism. Just keep kicking the ball a little bit further down the field, the decision. Uh, I, I still haven't seen enough. 
You know, in Matthew 13, Jesus went back to his hometown to preach, and he says he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In other words, I don't think another sign is going to do it. They were pre-committed. If you aren't won over by Jesus himself, who he is, the truth of his word, the goodness of his promises and his commands, the beauty and the glory of his character, there's not another sign that's going to somehow tip you over. At the end of the day, it's Jesus that you need to be won over by. Don't be like the crowds in the Gospel of John that had been following Jesus up to a point and then finally they all turned and bailed and said, sorry, the stuff you're saying is just too hard for us. We can't hang with that. Be like Peter. Jesus turned to Peter and said, are you going to leave too? And he says, where else should we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Final thing. We're almost done. If you side with Jesus, I want you to notice in the last phrase here, if you're with Jesus, then disciple making is part of the package. Look at what he says again and notice the parallel. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So with me are those who gather with me. And he doesn't mean those who gather with me like gathering around me like chicks around a hen. He means whoever is with me also joins me in helping gather people into God's kingdom. Comes alongside and participates with me in in the liberating work of freeing people out of Satan's kingdom and leading them into the kingdom of Christ. And the converse is also true. Those who are against me, in one way or another, actively or passively, contribute to scattering. Daryl Bach, one commentator, says it like this. People either follow Jesus and join with him bringing others into the kingdom, or they stand against him and influence other people not to come in. And which are you? Here's that found people, find people principle again. We're not trying to beat a dead horse here, but again, it's here in the text. Gathered in people, join the team that gathers in people. So whose side are you on? I love that the Lord has us right here in this text today as we are about to, in another 30 minutes, transform our entire campus into a gospel outreach station for the next five days to tell kids and parents and grandparents and families, anyone who comes onto our campus, this good news. And the theme is even what we're talking about. Lost in space is just a a, a visual analogy to help teach that God is a rescuing God who comes to us in our lostness and delivers us out of darkness into light. Hundreds of kids are going to be on our campus in this room tomorrow night learning songs, Scripture memory songs, hearing the gospel proclaimed. And I was thinking, how do you think our enemy feels about that? He hates what we're about to do here. I don't think he's going to sit this one out. So we can't sit this one out. But the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So I want us to take a moment here to pray for God's spirit to work with power that the stronger man would show up this week and overcome the strong man in the lives of our children and our families. So would a few of you right now just pray out loud uh, that God would do that this week? Yes, Lord, I pray that this time next week we would look back over this week and be able to say like Jesus, I saw Satan fall from heaven, like, or fall like lightning from heaven among us here. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen.